This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by Diana Perez, Dina S. Grant, Eileen Foss, Emily Hunter-McGuire, Enoch Johnson, Eric Sundrup, Glenn Adams, Helena Shoplick, Jeff Trussell, Jessica, James, and Joe Caldwell. Jim Aracy, John Tomchak, John, Cecilia, and Rose Dougherty, Joseph Roden, Jose Dueño, Catherine Clacailo, Keith Bergon, Kelly Sprissler, Kevin Haworth. Cody Tiford, Christy Steinman, Christine Kehoe, Laura Zorowski, Lauren Gonzalez, Liesl Clark, Linda Kiera, and Lisa Rutledge. These are just a few of our supporters on Patreon whose financial support makes this podcast possible. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash americamedia. Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the vivaciously young, kookily hip, and zestfully lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, everyone. Hello. You're both looking at me apprehensively. Like yeah, I, was sorry, I wasn't with expecting such a cheery hello. I never expect a hello from you. That's the thing. So I just, yeah. Well, hello, Olga. Hello, Ashley. It's good to be with you. Great to be with Thanks, you. Thanks, Zach. What are you, what are you holding there, Zach? What's I'm on tap? holding, so what's on tap? We are uh, talking this week with uh, a, a guest from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, who Olga will introduce in a moment. Uh, but also located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn is the Brooklyn Brewery. And so we are drinking the Brooklyn East IPA, 12 fluid ounces of 6.9% alcohol by volume. Ooh, some hoppy so, goodness. Hoppy. Cheers. I hear they added more hops recently. <laughs> and who is this person from Brooklyn that we are talking to, Olga? This week, we're chatting with Jonathan Merritt. He is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics. He currently serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic and contributing editor for The Week. Yeah, we're super excited to have Jonathan in studio. He's the co-host of the Faith Angle podcast with former guest and friend of the show, Kirsten Powers. You can check out our interview with her on episode 42. Yeah, and we had a great conversation with Jonathan about uh, religious language. Uh, it's dying which is sad. Uh, we talk about why it's dying, uh, what we can do to revive it, what will give us confidence in having uh, spiritual conversations, um, because there are a lot of words that just sort of, you know, as he says, like kind of get stuck in your throat mm. because they have such negative connotations with them, like sin and lost and grace and being saved. And he just wrote a book, Making That Case, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So stay tuned for that. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What do we got, Olga? This week, we're kind of switching things up. We've got one SOT this week. Um, we want to talk about the current sexual abuse crisis. Uh, last week, we mentioned it a little. Uh, the grand jury report had just come out of Pennsylvania, um, and we hadn't yet had time to read it or process it. So we wanted to really di- we really wanted to get into it some more this week. Yeah. So this was a the grand jury report coming out of Pennsylvania. It was the end result of a two year investigation into six dioceses in that state. Um, What the report found uh, over a thousand children were molested or raped by over 300 predator priests um, in These were cases going back 70 years, back into the 1940s. The vast majority of them happened before 2002, which is when the U.S. um, church put in protections to 
you know, stop this abuse. The Dallas Charter. Yeah. You're... After the yeah. Uh, the crisis really broke out in Boston back in 2002. Um, it, so it not only uncovered really horrific crimes, but it showed that bishops and other people in positions of power in the church were much more concerned about protecting the reputation of the church, protecting the church finances, than they were protecting children and bringing perpetrators um, to justice. Um, and while this was happening, a lot of people were feeling like a a, a deafening silence coming from the Vatican. Um, but Pope Francis had has issued a letter in response to this report uh, Monday morning. He he wrote, "We showed no care for the little ones. We abandoned them." And so this come out in addition to a Vatican statement that emphatically uh, asserted that Pope Francis was on the side of the victims and survivors. But there was not a great or there wasn't any specific call to action or any mention of bishops specifically covering up and hiding uh, some of these cases from the public. There was talk about like how there was a culture of cover up um, and that clericalism was a contributing factor to this crisis. Um, So it didn't ignore that aspect of it, but it, I can, I think the feeling was that like, Okay, we it, these statements took forty eight hours to come out, or four day or whatever, a week for Pope Francis. Um, but it's not like this is a complete surprise. Like we've been dealing with this as a church for almost two decades now. So the idea that it's, you know, that they didn't have time to come out with a concrete action plan by this point is just not or believable. Any, to, yeah, to and, most or people. any type of like talk about how this affects bishops and bishop accountability. And speaking of bishops, um, attention in the U.S. right now is especially focused on uh, Cardinal Donald Wuerl, who was the bishop of Pittsburgh, um, one of the dioceses that was named in the report from 1988 to 2006. Um, and people are especially critical of him right now because he published a website called theworldrecord.com uh, the day that this report came out. Yeah, And this um, was like a very slick PR operation like mm-hmm. this the report came out of pennsylvania and this website went up that day and it was basically like you're gonna hear a lot of things about my record when i was in pittsburgh but like here's my side of the story and you know he might have been telling the truth but it was not a good look for the first response of the of a cardinal to be to be defensive to be defensive right. right and many believe that uh cardinal world was diligent in protecting children um report describes instance of him fighting uh, abuse and an example is he traveled to Rome to argue against the reinstallation of an abuser priest, Anthony Cipolla. Uh, but there are also several more accusations that he felt he wanted to put in context, I guess, with the with the website. And the record does show that Cardinal then Bishop Whirl was actually ahead of a lot of bishops in terms of implementing a zero tolerance policy in his diocese and you know pushing the Vatican to remove certain priests. But there were also gaps in that record. Right, right. So the the report also shows that he's also he's also accused of sort of coddling these priests who have had sort of allegations of sexual abuse thrown against them in the past. So there's the example of William O'Malley, who had been accused of sexual abuse and uh, Wuerl lent him money and allowed him to remain in ministry. And because of this, a lot of people are calling for his resignation. And one example of a kind of egregious failure on the part of Bishop Wuerl is um, in this report, there's um, documentation of a ring of sexual uh, 
predators in Pittsburgh um, who committed horrific abuse and torture of boys. They would take pictures of them, distribute these pictures um, around the church, would then give um, the their victims golden crosses to wear that marked them as people who had been groomed for abuse. Um, and one of these priests, uh, you know, he was kind of shuffled around the diocese. Mm-hmm. He was eventually, you know, moved to Miami and then well, he died and Bishop Worrell presided at his funeral. Um, and, you know, fine, you can preside at someone's funeral. Everyone gets a funeral. But even though he heard about this bu- abuse, he never turned to the civil authority, or, you know, police. Or even, you know, informed, like, people in the church. Uh, and so this is the type of thing that's leading a lot of people to call for Cardinal Donald Worrell's resignation. And Bishop Lawrence T. Persico of the Diocese of Erie, um, who, while not mentioning Whirl, has also asked that bishops who hid this kind of abuse resign. Yeah, and Bishop uh, Persico is one of the few bishops that end up looking okay after this report. He was the only bishop in Pennsylvania who actually went and spoke before the grand jury. Um, and yeah, he has been outspoken about you know the church's need to hold bishops accountable uh, in, in the wake of these revelations. And Lay Catholics have sort of gone even further in their calls to action for what should happen after this. Uh, Groups like Daily Theology and uh, other church leaders have called on all bishops collectively to submit their resignation to the Pope. Uh, We, you know, we saw this in Chile after the sexual abuse crisis there, you know, sort of these mass submission of resignations. Uh, I don't know that we're going to see that, right? Right, because I feel like we've seen so many different answers from bishops that we're not going to see the sort of uniformed response that we saw coming out of Chile. Well, and there's just so many mm-hmm. bishops in the United States. It's not like, you know, between 30 and 40 bishops are submitting the resignations. We're looking at in the hundreds and trying to get hundreds of bishops to do anything together collectively. Yeah, and I think that's kind of why people have focused on Cardinal World because he reached 75, which is the age of resignation. He has offered his resignation to Pope Francis already. All Pope Francis has to do at this point to is accept it. Is accept mm-hmm. it. And I think a lot of people see that as a concrete thing that would show that the mm-hmm. church, that the Vatican, that Pope Francis is actually listening. Right. And so there are a lot of questions about how did we get here, right? So those are some of the facts of the case. So there's some of the uh, talking points right now, but a lot of people are offering their own responses for how this happened. Yeah. Um, I think it's natural to, when a great evil occurs, to to find um, a scapegoat. Not that it's good to find a scapegoat, I think, but that's what happens. Uh, and we saw a kind of disheartening example of this out of the Diocese of Madison, where uh, Bishop Robert Merlino released a letter uh, which basically blamed this crisis on a culture of homosexuality in the priesthood. Um, others have looked to celibacy as the problem. You know, if, if priests could be married, this abuse wouldn't mm-hmm. happen. Others have, you know, gone big picture and said this is just the sexual revolution. Um, Bishop Merlino in his statement said, well, when, you, when you don't call sin a sin, then this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I don't know. What do you think about? Yeah, I think I think what I always find problematic about this is that what sexual assault is occurs because there are perpetrators who commit these acts of violence because that's what it is. It's sexual violence. And they commit these acts under a system that allows them to have this sort of there's a 
imbalance of power that allows these people to thrive and make these kind of acts, you know, because that's what they are. And it's like last year we saw the rise of the Church to Movement where people from non-Catholic Christian denominations had their own pastors who were married also committing sexual assault and harassment. So I feel like to use celibacy, something like celibacy as an excuse is not, is insufficient. Yeah. And, the, and there's just not any, any evidence that proves any connection between celibacy or being gay to sex abuse. And so to try and link it to like the silver bullet response or even, even to like scapegoat uh gay priest or celibate mm-hmm. priest in general is a totally insufficient response to this and it's it's just narrow-minded right and it it, it takes away our vision from looking at structural problems that allowed for this to persist and allowed for this to be covered up yeah and i think i i in no way want to take away from like the horrific nature of the crimes that were committed against um children by people in the church but the fact of the matter is abuse like this occurs in families in neighborhoods in other organizations um and so we recognize that what is unique to the catholic church is this culture where they are protected from any accountability or transparency where priests and bishops and diocesan leaders are able to you know avoid the criminal justice system are able to shuffle uh, predators around no accountability right this a, can be sense, hidden for decades there's a sense that only the pope can punish the bishops right. and that doesn't i think i don't think most american catholics have really like realized that or thought yeah, about and that I, and, mm-hmm. and the fact that the, i think a lot of the anger is coming from the fact that this is in 2002 was supposed to be the reckoning where the church realized that it had this terrible history of abuse and that it was going to like not only you know prevent this from happening again but that like people would be held accountable for past crimes and we just see that that's completely not the case and because you know the bishops said they were fixing it 18 years ago or 16 years ago i think there's just so little faith when they say okay we're gonna fix it this time right and and in a lot of ways uh most of these cases are not after 2002 Mm -hmm. and so the crime is not so much that they they didn't (laughs) do anything they didn't implement any processes or structures to 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 stop sexual abuse from happening it's that no one has ever been honest about what happened and when and to who yeah. and who and who was involved in covering it up and right. so all of these things are still a secret and the uh, and they might still be a secret if unless there's going to be this slow painful process mm-hmm. where other yeah. grand juries in different states and areas you know subpoena documents mm-hmm. and have other grand jury reports and you know other states and dioceses where this right. is brought to light. I think, yeah, I honestly think the only thing that could the church can do at this point is is not to wait for the subpoenas and the civil authorities to intervene, but to open up their records, open up the books, show all the settlements that they've made, all the priests who have been accused, um, and do that proactively and not wait for them to be forced to do so. So where else do we go from here? Yeah. I've been thinking this week, it's like very important to have these conversations about what we need to do on a very structural level about, you know, the secrets that need to come out. But we also need to make sure that we're hearing the voices of survivors. There's a temptation to focus on too much on the perpetrators and not listen to what victims and survivors have to say. And so I know that's something I found myself struggling with. I haven't necessarily been seeking those voices out. And so I'm going to spend the next week, um, looking for them, reading them, um, 
and I think we should all do this. I think we can post them in our in, in our Facebook group and our uh, in our Twitter feeds and other things to try and really understand this. I think there's a listening period that has to come because it's not all going to change tomorrow, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Listeners, let us know um, what you're going to be doing to you know process what we've learned um, and to you know help rebuild this church. Joining us today in studio is Jonathan Merritt. He is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many others. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jonathan. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. We've already been warming up, so you guys don't you guys don't get to hear this. We have been warming up, so we we're very we are well acquainted. This is a, this is about to be good. Stuff. The IPAs are open. That's true. I'm yep. halfway through a beer. Yep. We've got another for you. So, um, so you you have a really cool job. So you get to talk about God as a journalist. You have a podcast podcast with former friend of the show Kirsten Powers called The Faith Angle um, and now you've written this really cool book Did you called say former friend yeah, of the show say, former still, friend well, sorry, former guest sorry, of the show. Okay. former, current former guest former say. guest thank you for correcting she me she is a current friend <laughs> Kirsten if you're listening sorry, I've got your mind, back girl my mind got scrambled but former guest on the show <laughs> yes, and yes. friend of the show yes, yes. Um, and you've also written this book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch so congrats on that hey thank you yeah. Thank you. So in the book you mentioned you moved to New York City and you found that people didn't really speak Christian in the way that you had been used to in Atlanta. Um, so why is it important that people can speak God even if they're not even if they're not raised religious or weren't raised in that way? Or, or what do you mean by speak Christian yeah, yeah, or speak start. God? Yeah. So uh, I I bet you there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who have felt this tension before. Uh, you know, I I grew I was a pastor. I went to seminary. I did all the the kind of religious things, and I lived in this very Christian community where I interacted with Christians. Look at me now. I'm like burping from this, <laughs> from this beer. This is going to be so freaking good. Tune in, <laughs> folks. Uh, so uh, I, I, I was surrounded by Christians. And I know you've got a lot of people who are like this, who are listening, who say, you know what, when I grew up, maybe, maybe when they grew up in their parents' home, you know, it was like they had all their church friends and that was, that was kind of their life. And then maybe they went to college or got a job. And suddenly they were interacting with people from different Christian traditions mm -hmm. or from uh, different religious traditions or people who practice no faith at all. And suddenly they realized other people weren't working from the same script, that they use a word and the other person maybe doesn't know what it means or the words that they're using, religious words are triggering to people. Right. right. Uh, because they see these these words as as um, extremist or maybe they've experienced these words as a source of pain or judgment uh, or condemnation in their lives. So and some so, of these words are like, well, I mean, you, you name it and it, you take it from the most religious. Mm -hmm. uh, you find words like sin, uh, evil, uh, those kinds of words. Those are in massive decline in the the english speaking world but Can you also talk about like a specific interaction writing. that you had that like either you yeah. met with a blank stare or they were upset yeah i remember with you. i remember there was a, a my barber and i tell the story in the book and my barber said oh my gosh you're you know there is snip 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 and uh he's uh talking to me because 
he's cutting my hair, but then he brings up my job. And he says, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a religion writer. And he says, oh my gosh, you know, I've got all this baggage in the past. I was raised in this kind of fundamentalist Southern Baptist. Do you know anything about that? And of course, I'm <laughs> just like... kind of nodding. And he said, what do you think about all that, like hell and sin and judgment and salvation stuff? And, you know, here I am in a mixed company. I'm in this room. I'm not, I'm not even prepared. I don't have my notes to talk about what I think about the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of salvation <laughs> or whatever. And I said, that's a, you know, that's a good question. Those are big topics. And I, I just lacked confidence to even answer the question. I changed the subject. I said, well, are you a, are you a Yankees or a Mets fan? You know, because that always gets <laughs> that's, people. That's a York, common language right? you, you have, right? That gets everybody. Yeah. Well, and, 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 it's, and it doesn't cause tension or arguments. So mm. in the United States right now, according to the research we did for this book, only 7% of Americans say that they have a spiritual or religious conversation regularly. And if you look just at practicing Christians, which include people from Catholic and Protestant traditions, that's people who go to church regularly in some Christian tradition, uh, only one in eight say they have enough confidence in the vocabulary of faith to have a spiritual conversation with regularity. Most of us say we care about God, we care about faith, we care about spirituality. If you're listening to this podcast, you do. Right. And yet, if you're anything like the average American or even the average Christian, you say, yeah, I don't have, on a given day, you're not having a spiritual conversation. But why do you, why do you think we need spiritual conversations? Yeah, great. That is a great, that's sort of the, you, to use an older phrase, it's the $60,000 question, right? Because if we don't need to speak God, we can if just this let is, these die, right? Yeah, why, why, then why did I spend 60,000 words and why are we spending a half an hour? Why do I want people to spend 1599? I spent about four and a half years working on this book and a year of that I spent just studying linguistics. And what I found was there's this emerging body of research that shows a connection between the words we speak and think and our behaviors, our, our lives, in my tradition in evangelicalism, we think of words as expressive. Mm -hmm. And so you have this kind of like low church, freestyle, you know, just me and Jesus and whatever the Spirit says, I'll say. But what we know and what the Catholic Church has never deviated from is that liturgy is important because it taps into the formative nature of speech. So they're kind of ahead of the ahead of the curve. Say more uh, about that. Obviously. What do you what, what do you mean yes. by that? In other words, that we we have noticed that there are certain words that you don't have to worry about whether it's expressing something you feel, but that when you speak it, it's shaping you in some way. These are like time-tested words that have proven to form us in helpful ways as communities. Is the onus on religious people to have like to re rediscover the roots of these sacred words? Um, or is there some type of shared responsibility by a secular culture too that has you know that is becoming larger right less fewer and fewer people are attending church or having even thinking about having religious conversations is it all on the religious community to find these words or is it important for the secular community to also have an understanding of these words look i don't expect people who are non-religious or antagonistic toward religion, I don't expect them to go out and start using sin in fresh ways or the word or rediscovering what God means. But uh, I think most people think that we would be better if we were a courageous society. I think that we would be better if, if our lives were animated by the virtue of mercy, 
Both of those words are in decline. Mm-hmm. So I think we all have a role to play. Or neighbor. Uh, you, I, I was really moved yeah, the by word your neighbor. mention. Neighbor. Yeah. The word neighbor. And misunderstandings of that word, decrease in the usage of that word, secularization of many of these words, where now a word like sin only refers to like a molten chocolate cake and... <laughs> Uh, you know, but it doesn't refer to kind of these yeah. deep spiritual realities about what's messed up in the world, what's broken, what's not right, what's not as it ought to be. We sort of have lost that and traded it for something that's more perfunctory. So, Jonathan, you you mentioned your evangelical background earlier. So how does your own faith kind of inform the way that you approach language? Oh, that's good. That was a good question. Um, you know, some of it talks, some of it, it goes back to what I was saying about being uh, expressive. Mm-hmm. You know, when I moved to New York, I discovered, you're going to you're laugh at this because I know if I were Catholic, I would literally laugh at Protestants because they go out and they write these books about like, oh my gosh, I discovered liturgy. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, give me a, give me, they're like, this is so beautiful and historical. And you guys are like, okay, I've been doing this since I was three. Or we're like, uh, <laughs> come to my parish. It's not so beautiful or historical. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you get, you get a lot of this, I know. And I'm sort of playing into this trope. But for me, having discovered that language has a way of 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 chipping away at us. Sometimes we use words and sometimes words use us. Yep. And liturgy, it's like, um, you know, I, when I was in the church, I was a teaching pastor at a big mega church in the South. And every week I, I was I was just make myself sick uh, over having to think about how to be the most creative person in the room, how to say the most interesting, how to say something new, how to say something cool that would captivate the attention of young people. Now, later in life, I've realized, actually, I don't need the new as much as I thought. I need the old. I need the ancient. I need the time-tested. And there's something about that that has reduced the anxiety I feel when I'm, when I am in a, uh, when I'm in a church where I don't feel the need to say something new and creative to every person I meet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of freedom profound. in that. Yeah, to just be like, hey, you know what? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Let's just let these words come into our lives and do with us what they will. And that's a, that, that is a way of thinking about speaking God that reduces a lot of the anxiety because there are a lot of people out there who grew up in traditions that, they have so much anxiety around speaking God precisely or correctly that they don't speak God at all. Because they're like, well, I don't know what the answer, I don't know what the church would say about this, so I'm just not going to answer it. And I I have found one of the most holy phrases, one of the most holy, spirit-filled, if I can say that, phrases, is, I don't know. Just say, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, If somebody says, what do you think liturgy means what do you think atonement means what do you think salvation means i you know what that's a great question that's you've you've you have raised something that i need to explore what do you think about that most people have lost i think um particularly in like post-enlightenment america we've lost this kind of curiosity with spiritual Mm -hmm. words and just to not let catholics off the hook too easily i think one of the dangers of having these you know prayers and formulas that we can always go back to is that it you can kind of like just kind of get onto get into autopilot and say them and not really think about what you're saying. Actually, don't air the dirty laundry <laughs> in front of the, right. not in front no, of the Protestant. Yeah, Jasper. come on. <laughs> that's what I I liked about your book is it it did make me you know 
encourage me to pause and think about what I'm saying when I say I believe in one God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this has been great, Jonathan. And one final question for you is if you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? I'm not even going to blank. I'm not. Are you ready for this? I already knew. You started talking about it and I already knew other than you. Okay. Because I like you and you bought me beer. If you be, if you bring me beer, you're you're already saint is is the silent prefix on your name. Uh, it would be Mister Rogers. Okay. And I actually wrote a piece uh, for the Atlantic called Saint Fred, and um, we kind of dialed it back a little bit. But I was actually arguing for using the Catholic criterion for canonizing him. Now he's not Catholic, so you're already out. But the you know <laughs> miracles. There was a girl that was on an old show called The Love Boat, which I never watched, but it was a show that like our parents watched. <laughs> she was addicted to drugs and she, his show came on and she that quick. She went sober. She gave it up. She heard she heard it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Here comes Mr. Rogers. She gave it up. There was a story of a, of a, of a child who was autistic and he watched Mr. Rogers and he started speaking. Um, Mr. Rogers, you know, he had the word, the Greek word for grace, uh, printed in his office in his, his studio in Pittsburgh. And every day he would walk into his office and he would say, Lord, may some word that I speak today be yours. And he was, he was actually ordained by his Presbyterian denomination to be an evangelist to children. He didn't talk about faith explicitly, but that guy was the hands and feet of Jesus. And there is no telling how many people, an entire generation of children who have been saved from emotional stoicism, who have been told in the absence of their parents, who, who, who the parents who looked at them and said, you're gay, I don't have a place for you. Or a society who said you're black and you're less than. Generations of people, or you're a woman, you're, you, you don't deserve the same pay. And he looked at them and through the television said to them, I like you just the way you are. You're special. And there's no one in this world like you. And I think if he doesn't deserve to be a saint, well, then I think the whole system we'll, can we'll be thrown him. out. <laughs> you are in good company. Uh, Sarah Silverman also canonized... Yes. Mr. Rogers. I so, did not know that. Yes. Uh, when she was on the podcast, episode 56. 56, correct. She Hi, also, Sarah. So, if you're listening, <laughs> hi, Sarah. So I think between Jonathan Merritt, Sarah Silverman, uh, campaigning for Mr. Rogers, I think she's going to get there. Did she go, come on now, did she go the whole episode and didn't drop the F-bomb? Nothing? It's true. She, nothing? Yeah. No, nothing. I don't believe that. Yeah. I know. I don't believe that. <laughs> Another miracle Censorship. Mr. Rogers. Censorship. <laughs> you cut it out. So Jonathan, um, this has been great. And where can people find your book? It's called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Well, in about probably about 18 months from now, you can probably find it in the 99 cent bin down at the Books <laughs> a Million. But right now, if you want to buy it right now, you can buy it anywhere that fine books are sold. Not the terrible books. They don't sell them there. But you can find it at, like, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever. Uh, yeah, please go and, uh, and pick up a copy and then reach out to me on social media or the interwebs and uh, let me know what you think. All awesome. Right. Thank, Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much so for much. Oh, yes, us. My pleasure. All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. What do we have, Zach? So 
we had a very heavy discussion up front um, about the sex abuse crisis and what's happening and how we're processing it, what we need to do next. Um, there's already been a number of people that have written us privately that have posted in our Facebook group about news they're hearing, uh, analysis that they're reading, um, stories that they're uh, hearing about and sharing them with the group. And that, on a personal level, uh, means a lot to me. The know that there are other Catholics that are wrestling with this and thinking about this and that are angry about this. So thank you. And continue to send those at facebook.com slash group slash America Media. You can send us an email at jesuitical.americamedia.org. As you heard at the top of the show, we are very grateful to our supporters on Patreon. Um, we cannot do this podcast without the support we get from people to cover the costs of, um, you know, editing the podcast, keeping this building going, buying drinks, all that important stuff. So please consider being a part of our Patreon community. Go to patreon.com slash Media. You can also support us by buying some Jesuitical t-shirts and other really cool Jesuit swag, which you can buy at jesuitswag.com slash Jesuitical. And if you don't want to go to jesuitswag.com slash Jesuitical, if you become a Jesuitical ambassador on Patreon, giving at the $10 level, you will get a t-shirt and other cool Jesuit swag twice a year. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a consolation this week. Um, since Enoch and I have been engaged, we've been doing a lot of the meeting families and like planning things. Um, and for a while, I kind of let myself get stressed out about what all of that means. Um and I was really anxious coming into work Monday, and I found this letter from uh, executive editor Carrie Weber. Um, she sent me a card congratulating me and Enoch for our engagement, and she was kind of like, you know, just letting you know that I, I'm really happy for you guys, and I want you guys to, I want this phase in your life to be wrapped up in the love of God, and I want you guys to be really happy and really together Um and it was just so consoling because I think I was forgetting what all of this was about. Like, I'm, I become so concerned with, like, how everyone's going to view our relationship and whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Um, and just kind of seeing her write that out so explicitly, it was like, right, this is what it's about. It's about me being in love with this person and us building um, our spirituality together. Um, so that was I really saw God in that, like, uh, comment from Carrie Weber. So Carrie's thank the you. best. She's fantastic. Great. What do you have, Zach? I have uh, an unexpected consolation this week. Uh, went to Mass Sunday, and uh, sort of the big question on my mind was, am I going to hear the, the the sex abuse crisis addressed uh, in the homily or not? And I didn't go to my parish. I sort of went to one around the corner from where I live, and I did not. It's not even in any prayers of the faithful, in, in the homily, in the introduction, in no way, shape, or form was it mentioned. And so I've sort of spent the week just being angry and I, I got to mass and I just like wanted to, he I, I wanted to stop being angry. I was tired of being angry and I wanted to hear some, you know, nourishment from uh, the church uh, and I just didn't get it. And so I'm angry and I'm tired of being angry, which makes me angrier because I'm like, why should you be tired of being angry? You you, you should keep this up. Um, but I go up for communion and, you know, I, I take the body, I take the blood and I, and I close my eyes and I take those first few steps back to my pew and I just have this feeling of, okay, okay, rest. Like after you finished a long run and you can't really say anything, but you just take, <sighs> and you're just sort of letting that out and you're still. And I, I, it, it, 
Jesus was like saying to me, like, just, just be still. You can be angry tomorrow. And, and that, I wasn't ready for that. And that was the consolation this week. And so I'm ready. And I felt, I came back Monday to work, ready to be angry again, ready to do this. And so I don't, I, I'm just grateful for that consolation I received this week. That's great. Um, I also have a mass related consolation. Um, so I was in, I was in Virginia this week spending some much needed time with my family. Uh, and I kind of like dragged myself away from them so that I could make it to my regular, um, 6 PM parish mass in Brooklyn. Um, because I just had this terrible feeling that like people weren't going to show up and I wanted Mm. to make a point of showing up so that, you know, the few of us that were there would at least have each other. Um, and, uh, I got to mass late, like by the homily, and I literally like couldn't walk in the door because it was standing room only. Like the mass was packed. And um, this six p.m. is not normally and this packed. Is, this is like our parish is under construction. This is the last chance mass in the parish hall um, that's been, you know, kind of sparsely populated all summer. Um, and it was packed. There were people standing in the hallway, um, and there was. I just felt one this consolation one and and knowing that i wasn't alone and like this feeling that like now more than ever like the people in the pews need to really believe and act like they are the church um so that one i wasn't alone in that and and two like you there was there was anger um there's a lot of anger in that room people weren't happy (laughs) um but i did see i saw god in that in that righteous anger um and so like we we talk a lot about how like consolation isn't just feeling good like no one in that room felt particularly good but they were all there um and righteously anger together um and and i i i saw god working in that in that ugly parish hall (laughs) in that ugly parish hall full of angry people yeah Yeah. all righty Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Vivian Cabrera. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Leo Stubner SJ. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.